1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Anthropology, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Alex Golub. I'm a professor of anthropology at the University of Hawaii at Manoa, and I'm the host of the channel today. I'm excited. Today, we're going to be talking to Anthony Hazard, an associate professor of ethnic studies and history at Santa Clara University. Tony, thank you for being on the podcast today.
1: Yes, Alex. Thank you for the invitation. Um and certainly thank you for taking the time to chat with me today.
0: Absolutely. So we we're, we're going to be talking today about Tony's book, Boazians at War: Anthropology, Race, and World War II. So Tony, um to get started about this book, maybe we just back up a little bit. Can you tell me about your your early training and work and and how did you come okay. to write this book? What was the lead up to writing this book?
1: Yeah, so it it really began with my undergraduate years at Arizona State um, I remember taking a class with enrolling in the class not really knowing what to expect um, but the class was genes race and society with evolutionary biologist Joseph Graves and in that class maybe halfway through he spent quite a bit of time talking about um, friends Boaz Uh, Ashley Montague, Ruth Benedict, and this organization that I wasn't really familiar with called UNESCO, right? Mm. So this organization under the United Nations umbrella. And I just, I I recall, you know, leaving that class, um, going up to the training room, you know, walking over to practice. I was on the track and field team. I was a long jumper. But I just remember my days, being filled with the work we were doing in that class. Um, I had never been exposed really to the history of anthropology, um, to looking at race through that lens. And it was Dr. Graves who, you know, opened up that door and and encouraged me to walk through it. Um, and I, I, I just, I carried that with me my junior year, senior year. Um, I took a little break before grad school. Heading into the the first year of my PhD program in 2003, I knew in my heart, in my mind, that I wanted to write my dissertation on UNESCO. Of course, um, over the next three, four years, coursework and studying for exams, um, the project expanded, it grew. I then ended up, of course, defending 2007, um, the book. I work on the book during my postdoc at Northwestern. um, And then the book is published November 2012. Um, But as I went through the process of revising the disc for for publication, new questions arose for me. Um, specifically concerning World War II, during my time as a postdoc at Northwestern, I designed a course called Race and World War II, mm. and in that okay. class, <laughs> it just we ha- it was so much fun for me um, because I have this history of military service in my family. Um, I'm African American and Narragansett, and I knew that you know my as, for my father as. A black and Narragansett man serving in the military for his father as an Narragansett man, for my father's grandfather as an arrogant man, there had to be a tremendous, um, tremendous conflict within oneself, right? To serve, to fight in World War One as my great-grandfather had, to fight in World War II as my grandfather had, for my dad. Um you know, he enlisted in the late 70s and he served in Desert Storm. Um, And and just thinking about the individual stories, the experiences of black and brown people, but then this this enormous historical context in which the U.S. military is fighting a war to defeat Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan with a segregated military, Mm -hmm. right? With segregation at home. Jim Crow was still the order of the day. Um, so to hear, you know, <laughs> FDR speeches about four freedoms and the like, uh, obviously there there were so many um, troubling and challenging questions for Black and Brown people at that moment. And I had the opportunity to, you know, to to explore some of those um, questions in the seminar, and from there. Um, I said to myself, "Wow, I, I, there's a lot there. I need to go back and <laughs> and get back into the archives, get back to the Philosophical Society, you know, embrace, explore Boaz and Montague again, um, and that and that's that's where the book, the idea for the book came from."
0: Wow, that's fascinating. Uh, It's always so great to hear uh, scholars who have passion and direction in their project. Mm -hmm. So much of the time when you're doing your dissertation, a
1: lot Mm -hmm. of people
0: try to figure out, you know, uh, what am I doing? What am I doing? I'm sure you had those moments too. I mean, we all do. But um, (laughs) but yeah, there I can see the strong intellectual uh, connections between the two of those. Mm -hmm. And your your book, you. Mentioned Franz Boaz and Ashley Montague. The book also covers Margaret Mead, Melville Herskovitz, and, mm-hmm. and Ruth Benedict. Mm-hmm. But um, I imagine that I mean Boaz is kind of the starting point for most of those people. Although I guess maybe Montague had a slightly different genealogy. Maybe we should just talk a little bit about about Boaz. What did you What did you find when you returned to the archive? I guess most people think of him as the as a, an anti racist activist, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think your story is. Mm-hmm complicates that or reveals the some of the more the nuances there in that that portrayal
1: yeah that was i mean it was it was just um a really great experience you know again returning to the philosophical society philly is 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 really my second home um and and that's you know where i i got my start doing you know real historical research so going back and Um, I I wanted to ask tough questions of Boaz and I think Lee Baker kind of got me going in that direction. His, you know, his wonderful work from Savage to Negro um, published in 1998. I I, I wanted to kind of follow up on some of the, some of the questions that Lee Baker attempted to answer in that book and, um, you know, really get at Boaz's own understanding of racism, not just um, on an interpersonal level, but I was, I was really concerned about locating, teasing out if in fact, Franz Boas had a kind of conceptualization of structural racism, like that was the big question Mm -hmm. for me um and and what I found was that uh, you know, f- for me and compared to, let's say Ruth Benedict, um, Ashley Montague, Boaz left, he left a bit to be desired in terms of his own understanding of structural racism. Um, and even 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 Boaz um, not being able to really make the connection between chattel slavery, colonialism, and quote unquote racial difference, right? As he observed it, he he, he wasn't able to make those direct connections. And that came out for me in the archival work and in re-examining the texts that he produced, a few of the texts that he produced. Um, so it it, you know it was it, again it was just a, a great journey um and something that of course had to be done uh when you know the the person's name is in the title of the book um to to start there to start there and the truth is i i was so far along with um with with the Montague chapter um that you know, there were there, there are places in, in the Montague chapter that I ultimately would return to um, because I wanted to keep, after doing the work on Boaz and, you know, writing that chapter, I wanted to make sure that, you know, Boaz was, that the intertextuality was there, that, mm-hmm. that everyone else was talking to Boaz. Right. <laughs> Even if they weren't, they still were, you know, through the work and through how they pushed some of his ideas beyond where he could go. Right.
0: So, so spell that out a little bit, that, that discussion of Boaz. People, I guess people think of Boaz as someone who proved that there, that there are not stable biological races and that, mm-hmm. and that no one race has any greater aptitude for mm-hmm. genius or civilizational products mm-hmm. or intelligence mm-hmm. or something than other people. Mm-hmm. But uh, so, and you're, take on Boaz is that somehow his critique of biological essentialism is is not connected to or is not accompanied by an account of structural racism in the US. Is that is that what you're saying? Spell that out for people who haven't read the book.
1: Yes, so so that's a part of it. Um, Something else that I found that, you know, took me some time to process was that even Boaz was unsure. Right. He, he, he wavered in his own belief about um, racial equality. There were moments in which he he would argue that um, due to the equal potential of every race, right, that um, potentially biological, quote unquote, races and, and cultural development um, could could occur. And, and sort of reach the same heights, if you will, the heights of, of being civilized, right? So there were times where he would, he would make the equal potentiality argument, okay? And then there were times where he would say, you know, he would just, he would just state it, and there was a, a talk he gave um, down at Atlanta University. He, he was actually invited by W.E.B. Du Bois to give a talk, and so he ends up giving two talks the first night he, he makes some remarks that are very much in line with um, 19th century typological thinking, um, this race developed in this way. Um, people of African descent are not capable of reaching a particular um, intellectual capacity or um, capable of producing um, um, cultural um, cultural. You know, products in, in, in a way that spoke to um, their intellectual endowment or their, their uh, ranking or height of civilization. And then the next day, Boaz, Boaz comes back and he actually refutes some of those arguments that he makes about um, the inequality of races. So he himself wasn't quite certain of either position. Yeah. Yeah. Go ahead. Sorry. I was
0: just going to say, I wonder, I wonder whether that is not him. I seem to remember that scene in the book, you know, he gives the first, he gives the first talk and then there's Mm -hmm. kind of like maybe scattered applause. And then he thinks, Oh, I better, I better revise for the second one.
1: Right. So the thing is, Alex, this, this appears in his works, in his written work. And, and that to me, um, Again, is, is, was one of the, the kind of cool things for me as a historian to go back and just, you know, look at um, kind of some unknown publications of his, an article here, an essay there, and, and tease that out. Um, and, the, and, and the uncertainty is there. It's there. Um, but yes, audience. I mean, it, it the a relationship to, to Black scholars and Black institutions. Um, you know, it's pretty complex. And I, and, and certainly he, he responded um, when he was in those spaces.
0: Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how much of this is due to his sort of unwillingness to ever say anything about anything you know is his is his sort of um scientific scrupulosity Uh, holding him back from making a more straightforward point or is he Mm
1: -hmm. or
0: or or is this really a situation where he just really honestly is much more deeply ambivalent about african americans than Mm -hmm. mainstream scholars would or past scholars would like to would like to admit
1: yeah that's i mean that's a really interesting question i What I really got in terms of just the energy from him, um, he was, and it, it, I was able to locate this passion in some of his publications. Yes, but in personal letters, right? The archive revealed a lot more to me than um, than what I had seen during, you know, doing (laughs) research for my dissertation. I think, I think. There was a genuine passion for doing something, you know, to move toward justice for Black people. I really believe it was there. I I, I feel like I I saw that in the archive. Um, but in terms of his relationship to the 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 discipline of anthropology, his relationship to, you know, science, uh, I think that's that's where he was. He was more likely to. Hedge, and say, okay, so I've seen this this evidence of cultural development here. You know, I can make the again equal potentiality argument that potentially races can develop, um, you know, to the the highest heights. But he he, I I really believe that he was um, unwilling to to make that leap, and um, certainly he doesn't. Uh, you know, go as far as is someone like Ashley Monague.
0: Yeah. And I, I think that that is also sort of connected to his relative. I, I mean, let me know if I get this wrong about your book, mm-hmm. but it, it seems to me like one of the things you're saying is that he has a sort of uh, theory of biology and he has a particular theory about the diffusion of culture traits and whatnot, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but he doesn't really have an account of, of social structure and inequality in the United States and that, that brings it back to that point about structural racism we were mentioning earlier
1: yes that that's that's precisely it and i I think one of the things I was able to do effectively um, was kind of scaffold uh, the how should I say the depth of understanding of structural racism over the chapters. So mm-hmm. by, you know, by the time we get, um, by the time we get to, uh, to Benedict, you know, it's been laid out that beginning with Boaz, you know, there was still <laughs> some really crucial work to be done in terms of, <laughs> you know, it's just yeah. in terms of, 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 you know, how not just these figures, but anthropologists and social scientists, you know would, would would come to understand what racism actually was what racism actually meant you know um and it's and and it's always kind of <laughs> it's just a, you get a funny feeling saying these things about about someone like Franz Boas but um you know it's it's uh if anyone would would appreciate getting as close to the truth as possible i think it would be someone like uh someone like Boaz,
0: oh yeah, he's got that hard <laughs> that hard jewel-like flame right, that's always burning in all of his writings, the jewel like uh, hard, passionate flame. <laughs> well, you know, I guess this also kind of raises the question of of what should we expect from scholars that we mm-hmm. read about in the past, or mm-hmm. you know what what would we think is is appropriate? i I know that mm-hmm. there are some scholars who would say, you know, Boaz said that black people were human. Yeah, and, and in the 1920s, <laughs> that was amazing, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and that's and and so he's a mm-hmm. hero, mm-hmm. you know.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's your that's but, your response. No, no, to that. that that's that, <laughs> that's 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 sure. That's fine. However, um, you know, we can ask more questions of Boaz, and I, I think it's completely fair to say that his work was was complex, and that um, he should be. know, hailed for, for doing some of the things that, that he did, certainly. Um, But, you know, for, for those of us who are historians and anthropologists and others interested in really excavating our contemporary understanding of race and racism, we, you know, we can, we can engage Boaz with, uh, you know, with a critical eye. There's, Nothing wrong with with praise and critique <laughs> yeah
0: well, and I think if you compare him to other authors like Du Bois mm-hmm. who admittedly were more focused on that topic than mm-hmm. he was then then mm-hmm. that's that's also an interesting thing to do and remember mm-hmm. but one of the things I really liked about this book was that you went through and read the book reviews of everyone mm-hmm. and you you also uh, pointed out. The obituaries and how people were, were remembered, especially in, in the in the black press, mm-hmm. and 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 Boaz at least when he passes away, he, the 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 immediate historical review is is pretty laudatory. It's
1: mm-hmm. yeah, it's
0: remarkable.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I you know I I think I got that idea um, from teaching my Malcolm and Martin class, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> in which you know, thinking about Dr. King and Malcolm X, the central question of the course is why do we remember these figures the way that we do? How do we remember them? And who has been involved in shaping that remembering? And so I wanted to, you know, to kind of to do that for not just Boaz, but, you know, um, most of the folks in the, in the book, um, because it goes to the the historical memory of the discipline and the black newspapers, the historical black newspapers, they're just, I mean, it's, they're just so rich. Like yeah. it's so much fun to get in there and spend all of that time, um, just reading through things there, there's the political energy in the, in the black press, you know, through, through mid-century. is just fascinating to me. Um, so I had an excuse to get in there and do that work and include it in the book.
0: <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've had a chance to read um, Bruchak's book, Savage Kin. It's about uh, uh, anthropologists' relationship with um, Native Americans. Mm-hmm. And, and she talks a little bit about how Uh, many of the things like adoption into local indigenous communities, which to anthropologists Mm -hmm. seem to be a sign of proximity and um, Mm -hmm. love and fellow feeling Mm -hmm. were sort of, in fact, communities ways of dealing with interlopers who were going to be there, whether they liked it or not. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's not actually a sign of incredible intimacy and um, allyship that these people were adopted or or whatnot. Mm -hmm. I, I wonder whether, um, Boaz was sort of the the person who was allied with um, the black press black newspapers um, and we should see his uh, his celebration in in mm-hmm. terms of what the other available options were you mm-hmm. know what I mean like mm-hmm. he was mm-hmm. he was the he was the guy who was there saying that mm-hmm. um, but that doesn't mean that necessarily uh, he was, everyone was completely on board with it or, you know, they they couldn't imagine improvements in his position or something like that.
1: No, I, I think, I think, I think it's, it's clear that, it's fairly clear that for members of the black press, you know, even someone like, someone like W.E.B. Du Bois, um, we could take Zoranelle Hurston who, you know, studied with Boaz and Ruth Benedict. Um, and these, you know, we're talking about like, Giants, intellectual giants in the Black community. Um, they're activists in their own right, of course, and you know I, I do think it's fairly clear that there was um, a tremendous amount of respect for the work that Boaz had done, was doing, you know, up up until, of course, the, the early nineteen forties when he passes. Um, but there was also and understanding that the work had to to go further. I I think someone like, again, W.E.B. Du Bois, well-respected for him, the the anthropological um, kind of hierarchy or establishment was incredibly problematic, but Mm -hmm. he saw Boaz as someone who was doing the good work, who was pushing things um, forward, So as as the Black Freedom Movement kind of accelerates during World War II, you know, there there was, I think, a very earnest push to utilize, quote-unquote, scientific or anthropological theories of race to buttress the Freedom Movement. And folks did look to someone who was, you know, very well known and established, like Franz Boas, but of course, you know, things move forward and the movement shifts, um, and and there was more work to be done. Um, but it's you know, this is something that that uh, <laughs> that is is a reoccurrence in terms of in terms of the intellectual voices utilized by the Black Freedom Movement um, within the movement itself. There, there's a constant presence of that, again, praise and critique. Okay, mm-hmm. this is good, this is useful, but we could do more here. Let's move forward. Let's push forward. So I think Boaz certainly was, was someone um, you know, who, who kind of fit that mold for a bit for the movement.
0: Yeah. And um, another person who was involved with this was Ashley Montague. Mm-hmm. Montague, I think, is not as well known as Franz Bois. I mean, realistically, I yeah. mean, most most people have not heard <laughs> Franz. But in, in our little world, yeah. um, and there's been a lot less historical research on on Montague as well. Right. Um, I I think of him as when I was in graduate school back in the day when there were still bookshops, you would go mm-hmm. and you would go to like the secondhand shelves <laughs> mm-hmm. and there would just be there'd always be secondhand books by Ashley Montague, a lot mm-hmm. of them. Hmm. So I, I always had a sense that he was someone who must have been important mm-hmm. and taught because a lot mm-hmm. of those books, those paperbacks were were assigned in college courses. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think maybe his story has not uh, received quite as much attention. Can you tell me about about him and and his work?
1: Yeah, so that so there that is a book in and of itself. The Ashley Montague <laughs> biography. Um, this guy was fascinating. Uh, The first thing I'll say about him is that um, he was born uh, to a Jewish family in East London um, and uh, first decade of the the 20th century. And by the time, I'll try to make this quick. By the time he enrolls at uh, University College London, he decides to shed his Jewish name um, Israel Ehrenberg, and he takes on this persona of this aristocrat named Ashley Montague, right? So he he literally is playing with his own Jewishness and whiteness. Um, as an undergraduate student, he keeps the name Ashley Montague. Um, by the time, of course, he you know enrolls at Columbia and embarks upon his own career, he's known as Ashley Montague, right? So there's there's the um, and I'm, I'm, I'm playing off of Toni Morrison's work on um, Playing in the Dark. But Montague is playing with his whiteness, right, mm-hmm. in that way. Fascinating to me. And then we get to um, man's most dangerous myth, The Fallacy of Race, which he publishes in 1942. And in this book, it, it, he attempts to deconstruct race. Like before, you know, before that term was a thing, that's precisely the work that he was doing, attempting to interrogate the very biological concept of race. Um, And he was, I'll say, I'll just say this and then I'll stop. Um, He was, I could go on forever about Montague, but um, I want to give you a chance to get in there. He was really one of the, the, the first scholars to place the term race in scare quotes. Um, He was really one of the first to uh, attempt to undermine the concept of race in that way by calling out the very validity of the concept.
0: Mm. So he was at UCL and then Mm -hmm. Columbia. So Mm -hmm. when he studied anthropology in London, who were his influences to get him thinking this way? And then at Columbia, was
1: he influenced by Boaz? And so he was, I would say that, yes, he was influenced by Boaz. Um, but he also spent some time at uh, slips my mind. There's another school. It's so like the new school or London. something? No, it wasn't the new school. London, oh, School of, e- London School of Economics.
0: Oh, the LSE.
1: Yeah, he spent some time there.
0: Malinowski land.
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So, so there we go. I would say that Malinowski was was indeed an influence on him. Um, their correspondence is extensive, um, and and I would also say that by the time he gets to during his time at Columbia, it's Boaz, but I. You know, in my reading of the archive, I think Ruth Benedict had a bigger influence on him and pushed him um, in ways that that Boaz didn't in terms of his understanding of race and in terms of getting him Montague to ask certain questions about race and I'm not quite sure that i that I get to that in the in the Montague chapter, but just recalling my sense about the archive and Benedict's archive too, of course, I'm at Vassar, the way that they, that Benedict Montague talked about these issues in the, the private letters. I, it's my feeling that Benedict actually had a bigger influence on Montague's thinking about race.
0: This was, this must've been at the 1930s, you know, for, for most of Mm -hmm. the thirties Boaz was, was, um, you know, ill and not as active and Mm -hmm. and Benedict was really doing a lot of the heavy lifting at the department. So maybe Mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's why that is that way.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so Boaz didn't put race in scare quotes and Montague did. Tell me, Mm -hmm. tell me more about that.
1: Yeah. It's again, so that it's difficult to make a, to draw a direct connection between what what would have been Boaz's influence on getting Montague to that place. But I think that, and this is something that, um, you know, (laughs) again, deserves its own book, but learning more about Montague and how, and what really happens with him from his childhood through his graduate training to get him to that moment in 1940 and 41, where he's making this move. Right To interrogate race in that way, I can't I can't say that Boaz had that influence on him. What I think it was for Montague um, was just him being him questioning everything in a creative way. Um, you know, I feel very close to Montague. I've worked on him from you know my first first time I stepped foot in, in the city of Philadelphia. Mm. I think this was this was his creative way. Um, to interrogate race, and I will say, I I, I actually think that Julian Huxley, Elsie um, Dunn, Theodosius Dobzhansky. I think those biologists, um, geneticists. Elsie Dunn was was an anthropologist, but I think their work in the 30s, as they were trying to work out, um, you know, a synthetic theory of evolution. I think their work impacted. Montague, again, more than Boaz.
0: Yeah. and so what is Montague's argument? I guess that's what I'm wondering. When you say mm-hmm. that he puts race in quotation marks, mm-hmm. what is his argument? and how is that different from from Boaz's argument a, yeah. about race? what What makes Montague's mm-hmm. more more powerful or novel or emancipatory?
1: That the very notion that human beings can be categorized into biolo- biological races, was in fact a myth that science did not support um, the very categorizing of human beings into racial groups. Hmm. Whereas for Boaz, there were races, there were biological races. Um, Certainly, yes, with their own histories, um, certainly environmentalism mattered and cultural relativism mattered. But for Boaz, there were biological races. For Montague, that was a myth. And for him to say that and to write a book about it <laughs> for Columbia University Press to publish it in 1942, uh, that, that was, um, I've always found that, you know, to be striking. So that's, the, that's the, the, the key difference there.
0: And that's different. I imagine maybe with the Boazians too, one of the things you got a lot was that, you know, everybody is made of a mix of different races, mm-hmm. but, um, but I guess that's still a way of reinscribing the notion that there are distinct races. It's just that each individual is composed of several. I think that was the. Lots of Boasians kind of held that view, mm-hmm. whereas, and you still find that around today sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, <laughs> yeah. um, for for Montague, the whole category had to be scrapped.
1: Yes, indeed, indeed, and um, again, it wasn't something that was that was being done. It, it really wasn't. I think. Another example would be uh Jacques Barzun. In nineteen fifty he wrote a book with a similar title, something about the the myth of race or something. And in that book, uh he places the term in quotations, uh scare quotes as it were. Um but it was it was rare to see that done.
0: Yeah. I
1: guess both
0: Boaz and Montague were Jews who had mm-hmm. ambiguity. I should say I'm Jewish, so this is always <laughs> interesting <laughs> to me. <laughs> yeah, um, they're they're both Jews who who uh, didn't really identify strongly with being mm-hmm. Jewish, but still mm-hmm. somehow their experiences of Judaism and so, uh, some sort of some sort of um, negative experiences, even right. though they lived in relatively liberal places at the time, mm-hmm. that somehow must have played into their. Um, biographies, but they took Mm -hmm. very different positions as a result of that.
1: Yeah, so um, I I mentioned uh, very briefly just a bit about, you know, Montague growing up in East London when he, uh, there was an interview done in 1996, I believe, just before his passing. And he talks about, you know, being in East London, living, you know, as a Jew on the East End, and being chased and having rocks thrown at him, um, being beaten up, and at that moment, I suppose in that you know moment in his life, he felt comfortable or even compelled to to describe those childhood experiences um, and how that you know that violent environment for Jewish people impacted him, as you know, obviously as a human. Um, but as a thinker, as a scholar, and it's, it's, it still bothers me that I haven't been able to, (laughs) to go to the UK, to go, you know, to go to London and, and just investigate that part of his life more. Um, but it's, it's, Yeah. yeah, no. And, 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 um, you know, the, the ways that he's, this is, this is something else I could, I could go on about, but the ways that some of his critics um, invoke his Jewishness at times is also uh, fascinating to me, because in a way he was, as he played with his whiteness and Jewishness, at times he did want to hide. You know, he wanted to hide his Jewishness. Um, but then in other moments he embraced it. So it's, there's just so much, so much there uh, with Monaghan.
0: You know what I would love to see? I would love to see what the um, correspondence between him and Malinovsky is like, you know, Malinovsky Mm -hmm. made a point of never being boring. And I imagine there must be, there must be a lot of gossip in in there. Yeah.
1: Yeah, And that's the, that's the whole thing to get back to LSE, um, you know, and, and read those letters because it's, there isn't a lot in the Montague archive in Philly. Yeah.
0: yeah, you know one of the other authors that you cover in the book is uh, Herskovits, mm-hmm. and and I was struck in the chapter on Herskovits. You almost you almost sort of place him not so much as a Boasian mm-hmm. as as a as a Du Boisian that he mm-hmm. was. He was if he himself was not directly educated in that tradition, almost all of his work got subsumed. Within it, am I yes. am I reading that correctly?
1: Yes, and this is uh, the well. The larger point, you know, what I wanted to do, and I and I I make this claim about Boaz as well, is that there's a larger, you know, black intellectual tradition that I think Boaz benefited from. Certainly, Herskovitz benefited from um, because if we're thinking about if we're thinking about interrogations of 18th and 19th century thinking about biological difference and culture, you know, and difference in terms of culture, there were black people already interrogating race (laughs) in in ways that would, um, that would become more popularized and prominent in the 20th, in the 20th century, excuse me. Um, And so for someone like Herskovitz, who he enters into, he begins teaching at Howard University, right? Mm -hmm. And in that moment, at that moment, he actually argues against the existence of Africanisms in African-American culture over that time, right? So his time at HU and then certainly the work of Carter G. Woodson, um, certainly Du Bois. These folks are ahead of Herskovitz in understanding continuity—the continuity between African American culture and um, that of, you know, West and Central Africa, of course, with uh, the West Indies tied in there as well. So it's it is a journey for Herskovitz to get to the point where he is making those arguments in support of. Um, that kind of cultural, um, those cultural links to the continent of Africa. And so in some ways, yes, I would agree with you that, that um, Herskovitz is, is more aligned there. And to, you know, to one of your earlier points about um, how Franz Boas was received by the Black press and the Black community, uh, it, it's, it's when Herskovitz gets to that point and, and um, he consistently makes these arguments in support of um, African cultural retention that he's widely embraced and, and certainly hailed as uh, someone who's doing, again, doing the good work for Black people in the United States. You know, if I
0: can just ask you to uh, engage a little bit in your own subjective judgments, you know, mm-hmm. I, I feel like in the book. Uh, Boaz comes off as being not not quite as um, as much a politically progressive figure as we'd like. Montague comes Absolutely. across as as quite active. I mean, I kind of feel Absolutely. like he gets the Tony Hazard seal of, of approval, <laughs> that, you know that 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 Franz, uh, Franz Boaz doesn't get. Mm-hmm. I mean, is that
1: that sounds right? And Then how
0: about Herskovitz, If if you don't mind me just asking you to indulge your your personal perceptions of these people,
1: yeah. So I, I you know. And being so close to these folks um, for so long, um, and of course, my own positionality, my own training, um, I can just say flat out that I I thought Ashley Montague was the coolest dude um, from day one. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> from reading, you know, Man's Most Dangerous Myth to his work on the UNESCO Statements on Race. You know, the fact that he um you know went to the race relations institute at Fisk mm-hmm. and you know and and I mean they were in they integrated for two weeks. Montague wasn't there for the entire two weeks, but they they integrated that institute the at you know in Nashville, Tennessee. Okay. <laughs> right, right. I mean so 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 this is and 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 later on of course, you know, it was multiple appearances on the Johnny Carson show and all of that. I just thought Montague was an awesome dude, but I thought that also that, and I think that his scholarship and his willingness to actually go down South and do those sorts of things, um, you know, it, it, it held up. He wasn't just a thinker. He was doing the things that black people were doing physically right. with their bodies. So I would have him, um, you know, in one particular position, one particular position, Space or place in terms of, you know, how progressive he was. I think Herskovitz, Herskovitz's career was so different. Um, his work for the U.S. government, the things that he was doing, attempting to institutionalize African studies, um, not just at Northwestern, um, but in universities around the country. Um, I don't. It, it's 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 clear to me that Herskovitz was, was not as active, um, to say that he wasn't as concerned. I don't think that would be fair, but he did not engage in the, the types of the sorts of activism with one's body that Ashley Montague did.
0: Right. And, and, you know, I can't remember whether it's in, um, your book or the last book that I did, which uh, for this podcast, which was also a little bit on Fisk, but like Mm -hmm. that integrated conference, people in Nashville were concerned that it Mm -hmm. was integrated. I mean, this is not something that happened in a a room in a college campus and no one had heard about. I mean, they they were worried about it in, in the non-academic community.
1: Yes. People, people called the police on, (laughs) on them. Uh, and this was this was a nightly occurrence that, that you know local law enforcement were showing up because white citizens of um, of Nashville would call the police on them. And I'll I'll add that seeing the photographs, you know, the, not just in the classroom, not just um, the you know the dining area, but they held dances like they mm. were hanging out they created an integrated setting at Fisk. And it, it just, it's, yeah, like I said, just just so cool and, and really progressive and knowing um, that the order, order of the day was Jim Crow segregation and understanding that, that there was a you know, certain potential for violence that accompanied Jim Crow segregation.
0: I think that emphasis on the body is really interesting. You know, um, I study the Pacific Mm-hmm. and and for for the uh, pacific anthropologists who are not pacific islanders mm-hmm. uh, these days when we think about what kind of discipline we want to build it, you know i think one of the things we focus a lot on is is being in the same room having people come to conferences mm-hmm. not just engaging in a in a shared discourse or a shared problematic but mm-hmm. but engaging in that like embodied way of knowing people and being directly connected to them so that that resonated with me. I think, yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's 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 such a challenge. And there's you know there's allyship, and then there, there's being a, a co-conspirator. And you know, for me as a historian, understanding um, what the history of Black freedom has been about, it's it's been about facing that that physical danger. Right? it's it's mm-hmm. it's one thing to 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 have the um the intellectual engagement. but end of the day, you know it's 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 for me, um, Dr. King was radical because he was willing to be beaten and bloodied to make a point. Um so it is is the, the the body is so very important when we're talking about the fight, you know, the, the real fight for freedom for black people and brown people.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, um, I guess this is uh, going to be posted in the New Books in Anthropology podcast. So I, we should spend a couple of minutes mm. talking about Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> um, I, 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 uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure where to start. I, I'm, you know, people tend to run very hot and cold on Mead, and they mm-hmm. always have, even, mm-hmm. even when she was uh, alive. Um, uh, I, I, I tend to run colder on her maybe than mm-hmm. some people, um, even, even, you know, maybe because of the Pacific connection there as mm-hmm. well, but yeah. <laughs> uh, am I right in saying that you, you feel like, uh, Benedict sort of had, a a pretty good, we're talking, uh, pretty good account of, um, mm-hmm. of structural racism. And, uh, did she sort of go farther than Boaz by the point that time we get to her doing that book or her multiple books? Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe we should just start. She, she had this project, even though she herself did not study race, on mm-hmm. publishing about race during World War II. And I believe, mm-hmm. yeah, you'll tell me. Yeah, I guess mm-hmm. it was during World War II, but then um, it got started before the U.S. entered the war maybe. Um, tell me about that project. And is it is it true that she maybe had a, a more nuanced account of uh, structural racism or do I not remember that
1: correctly? No, so, so um, are we talking about the pamphlet? Yeah, the races
0: as, races of man or I can't remember.
1: Yes, yes. So so this um this pamphlet project it was to be uh, kind of a an educational guide for um military personnel um and eventually as well, as well as as civilians. Well, it's a very very uh short pamphlet, um 30 35 pages I believe in which she would you know lay out um the kind of well her um boazian take on um how race was understood at that moment and cultural difference as well and so i would say that that that, that particular pamphlet um which which stirred controversy um in the military among the military brass there was a an investigation by congress people were very upset about it. But in that pamphlet, uh, you know, she basically lays out kind of, you know, environmentalism. Um, There are uh, racial differences due to the environment. It's, it was, it was, it wasn't, she didn't go as far in the pamphlet as she does in her later work. Um, And some of the, the, some of the the essays that she wrote but did not publish, and I believe I I, I utilized one of them um, in that chapter, they were far more progressive, and and she did indeed lay out uh, an understanding of structural racism. Um, I think in race, it's race, science, politics, Mm -hmm. uh, the larger work of hers, she does some of that, that work on institutionalized racism as well. Um, but the pamphlet, and this is what, what was, I want I to say comical at times, because I did laugh reading some of the, the letters um, that were sent uh, by you know, members of Congress. Um, and and they, were, they were up in arms that, mm-hmm. a, first of all, that a woman would have the gall to say that there weren't, there was not, and um, there were not innate racial differences that existed um, among the various races, and that each quote unquote race possessed the potential <laughs> to develop, um, you know, their intellectual abilities and to create a um, set of cultural practices that. Again, potentially could be viewed as equal. Just the very notion of equal potentiality had members of Congress just on fire, and I again, I did, I chuckled a time or two reading uh, reading through those um, letters. But I would, I would say that Benedict um, did possess uh, a deeper understanding of. of of what racism was particularly in the U S context than, than Boaz did.
0: And that's interesting too, because, you know, she was, you know, white Protestant mm-hmm. from like a, what they call an old American family.
1: Yes. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh, some, which some Americans like native Americans might not think of as that old, but, right. <laughs> um, but, uh, so tell me about some of that, um, that unwritten work where she's, where she's freed from, uh, having to be answerable to the public and she can express herself a little bit more, more freely.
1: Yeah. The, the, the one piece that, um, that stood out to me was very brief, I think three or four pages, but the title was if I were a Negro Mm. and I know, right. So I see this, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting there at the, you know, at the desk in the archive at Vassar. And I, and I see the folder and, okay, I open it and I'm like, what is this? <laughs> um, and so, you know, reading through it and she, she, she kind of paints uh, a picture of a, a two or three different scenarios, getting on an elevator if I were a Negro, walking down the street if I were a Negro, right? And and she, it's like she attempt, attempts to, to embody that, right? It's her effort to, to at least on a cognitive level um, understand, grapple with what it might feel like being being black in New York City in the ni- late 1930s, early 1940s. And again, this is New York City. She's not talking about, you know, Birmingham, right? Um, and it was, it, it just it was fantastic. The way and, that she at least made the attempt right and, and 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 to take the time to 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 write it for herself
0: yeah it it shows her to be such an empathetic character, which i think the the biographies of her that have been written really 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 show that that side of her i mm-hmm. I love your um you make it sound so exciting to do archival work <laughs> i love your your passion for that you know I've done this kind of work as well as a historical anthropologist and I know mm-hmm when you talk about that moment where you look at the title on the folder yeah. and you flip out, you know, people people who don't do this work, they don't understand how exciting it will be, or they they will now when they listen to this interview. So if there are our listeners out there who think that archival work sounds boring, now you can get a sense of, of how exciting it is and how much these people come to life for us. You mm-hmm. know, I asked you sure. earlier, maybe a little unfairly to to talk about your own personal opinions of these people but mm-hmm. for people who haven't done archival work i mean you get to know these people you yeah. you live with them I, yeah. they're not abstract entities at all they're no. you get to know their foibles and their weaknesses in a in a really really real way
1: yes indeed and i and i'm reminded of uh it was my it was my second trip to Vassar. and on one of you know you're winding down you're exhausted you have you know a few days left and um, I was able to look at look through uh the box that contained the the items in her purse at the moment that she passed away.: Wow. Yes, yes, yes. And that box had been on my mind for I am not exaggerating years because I read um in Lois Banner's book. Um, about Mead and Benedict, she describes. I believe it's her. She describes the items in um, Ruth Benedict's purse, and so I have been thinking about that. You know, back in my mind, but I, I knew I had to to look through that box, so I did that, and I believe there was a dry cleaning slip and, uh, you know, some other just some other ordinary, everyday, ordinary things. Um, but the fact that I that I was able to. Look at those things touch them feel them it's it's I don't know I suppose that's the metaphor for, for archival work it's like you feel what was there
0: yeah people people um, forget to get back to this theme of the body archival mm-hmm. work is embodied work working with text mm-hmm. is, em- is embodied work you know and mm-hmm. um, and it can hit you when you do that kind of thing yeah. That, that um, that um, piece of hers, if I were a Negro, it's, it was not published by Margaret Mead in the Anthropologist at Work volume. It's just it just lay there until you found it.
1: I don't believe it was. I don't believe Mead included it. Um, I can double check, but I really I don't believe, and I think that's a part of the reason I was I got chills when I found it. <laughs>
0: Well, you know, you should definitely find a place to publish it somewhere. That sounds uh, absolutely remarkable.
1: Yeah, I would love to. Yeah.
0: Well, look, I've taken up a lot of your time. I don't want to keep you for too much longer. But before we uh, go, can you tell me about what your future projects are that you're going to thinking about doing now that you've uh, gotten done with this book?
1: Yeah, so I uh, and I mentioned uh, a bit of my my family history earlier. Um I I want to write. I want to begin with uh, an article uh, chronicling the experiences of the Narragansett during World War II. Um, of course, my my grandfather and great grandpa will appear mm-hmm. <laughs> in that. Um, but there's, you know, in addition to the the uh, the family history, there's something to to explore in terms of um, historical erasure um, within the context of racial categories. And um, what I mean by that is my great-grandfather and grandfather, the extended family, on the census records from 1870 through 1930, the, the way they're categorized changes. So in 1870 they were categorized as Indian. In 1920 they were Negro. In 1930 they were Negro, right? But then my my grandfather's draft card has him as Indian. So I'm 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 trying to think through, you know, US government policy, what was the state of Rhode Island doing with in terms of um you know the Narragansett population. Is this really a question of um, a misunderstanding of racial categories, or was there something? Um, is there something to an attempt by the state to erase the Narragansett people, right? Their their very identity um, and their history by categorizing them as quote Negro. Um, so this is this is the the one of the big questions that has. Um, just stuck with me uh, since i began going through the the census records um and it it's you know definitely early moments in my thinking about the project but uh, i feel like that needs to be done it needs to be i need to do it for myself i need to do it for my father and certainly the you know the next generation of of hazards i need to write i need to do that
0: yeah. Well, as I said, you know, these projects that come from deep places in our biographies, I think, those are always the ones that you're going to be able to pour yourself into and really get mm-hmm. something good out of it. So that that sounds like it, that sounds like a great project. I look forward to reading it.
1: Thank you. I'm 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 excited. Once you know things calm down, uh...
0: <laughs> yeah, in our yes. copious free time, right? I mean, what <laughs> yeah. go wrong, right? <laughs> <laughs> After twenty twenty. Okay, well, Anthony Hazard, author of Boasians at War, thanks for being on the podcast today.
1: Thank you so much, Alex.
0: This has been an episode of the New Books Network. Please go ahead and subscribe if you want to find some more New Books content. And until next time, take care.